got a friend in me. Look to your left. Look to your right. That's your brother, bro. Future POTUS Chester Arthur was the son of a preacher man. Arthur, darling, can you take off your corset tonight? The whalebone pinches me in my abdomen. Welcome to episode 21 of the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. Season 2 is sponsored by our friends at Greek's Pizzeria. Place your order for some delicious pizza pie at greekspizzeria.com. Greek's Pizzeria, it's our taste. It's our taste. It's our taste. Russ, now you have to say it too. No. Ah, dang it. (laughs) Every time. <laughs> I'm Ryan Allward, joined by Blaine Zimmerman, and uh, you just heard his uh, voice, Russ Slivka. Uh, Russ is our producer and vice presidential extraordinaire, and I'm sure all of you have gotten the pleasure of getting to know him and enjoying his deadpan delivery and factoids and just editing. Background laughter. <laughs> Like, if we can make Russ laugh, that's a good that's episode. That's typically my goal every yeah. episode. <laughs> Blaine, what are we calling episode 21? What book did we read and what are we drinking tonight? Mm. <laughs> so this episode is based on the book, The Unexpected President, The Life and Times of Chester A. Arthur by Scott S. Greenberger. It was written in 2017 and comes in at 242 pages. Yeah, it was kind of a breeze compared to the other ones that we've read. It was quite the breeze this episode is called the walrus <laughs> unless there's some other reason besides his glorious mutton chops that was it that was it that okay was the all right i didn't i didn't read in the book that he was an aficionado of the glorious walrus i love that name and what Cuckoo are we drinking could you. huh Cuckoo could you <laughs> what what are we drinking tonight blaine you wouldn't show me the bottle of wine so we're going to go on a little wine adventure Ooh. and it's going to tell a little story tonight i feel fancy so uh it was said that arthur drank wine and dinner liqueurs pretty much nightly so i chose three chardonnays and they're going to follow sections of his life the first chardonnay that we're going with is from the Steelbird winery and it is called smoking loon because ah. that's, you know, probably a good way to describe his early political career. He was yeah. just a smoking loon. Well, he also, I mean, smoked cigars. That was just, what I was going That's with. what yeah. you're going for. Yeah. Okay. Well, loons are probably up there. In, well, he's uh, a loony. I like that. And I just looked at the bottle like I do every episode. <laughs> I just realized as I was doing I it. I said it right where you could grab it. You two were looking at each other waiting so kinda, for me to pick pay, this up. That's a, that's a little Easter egg for this episode. Like as it. we go through, pay attention to the names of the wine. Steelbird Smoking Loon. It's a 2019 unoaked Chardonnay. Uh-huh. Yep. No oak in this Chardonnay. No oak. And no oak in the well, barrels. Give me a tasting. Ooh, you can really smell the, the non-existent the lack oak. Of oak. Mm-hmm. It's buttery. Like most Chardonnays. Smooth on the finish. Mm-hmm. Creamy. Mm. Tastes like a $9 bottle of wine. Mm. <laughs> you can really taste the bargain shopping. <laughs> uh, smoking Loon. We have three bottles of wine to get through? We do. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to get through all of them. We just have to have some from each bottle. Down the hatch. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Our running page tally right now, 21 presidents in, is uh, we're not yet to 10,000. We're at 9,496. So we're almost experts. Almost. Yeah. That's right. Just 501 more pages yeah. until we know Become it all. experts. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> it's 10,000 hours, isn't it? Or is that the name of a Dan and Shay song featuring no, that's... Justin Bieber? <laughs> 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 or is it, is it both? It could be both. 
Hey, if you love this podcast and want to get episodes early and ad-free, join our Patreon community right now for just five bucks a month at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash presequential. For $10 a month, you can also get our exclusive bonus episodes. We're actually going to record one of those tonight on other influential Americans sent to you via email. Sign up today at Patreon.com slash presequential. And cheers to all of our patrons and to you listening right now. Cheers. Send one down there to Russ for me, would you? Our bonus episodes are presidential adjacent mm-hmm. yeah we've covered uh who have we covered paul revere samuel colt we're doing general lou wallace tonight mm. lord timothy dexter yes yeah. other influence charles guteau did you say that one no i didn't yeah but, yeah we're doing him as well daniel sickles uh-huh mm-hmm. yeah that was a fun one what do we remember about the walrus chester arthur from social studies gentlemen I actually knew that he became president after an assassination. You knew that. Wow. That's fun. Mm -hmm. I thought you were just going to say absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's the norm. Yeah. Blaine, anything about Chester Arthur from high school? No. No. I I barely knew about him because of his facial hair. Like the name stands out. Yeah. Right. There was a study in 2014 published that asked 500 American adults to write down as many presidents as they could remember in five minutes. Arthur came in dead last with only 6.7% of respondents able to remember his name. What would be the one? What's the one you always forget? Um, Probably Warren Harding, maybe. Mine's Hayes. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Mm -hmm. I always forget Hayes. Mm -hmm. Mine's usually Grover Cleveland. Maybe Taft. I actually had my wife. Which is weird because he's two. Yeah, he's two. He's the next one and then the one after that. That's right. We're just releasing the same episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, man. But Arthur actually did one of the most memorable and positive things that any politician did in the 19th century. And he had to take on his own party to do it. And that, of course, is taking on the reformation of civil service. Uh, Let's dive into his early life, shall we? Mm-hmm. Chester Allen Arthur, a man with three first names, was born in a small log cabin in Fairfield, Vermont, on October 5th, 1829. Named after the doctor that delivered him. Yes. Uh, I believe that was his mom's cousin, Dr. Chester Abel. Mm-hmm. Kind of fun. Uh, his mom's name was Malvina. That's a fun name. You don't really hear that a whole lot. Her husband, William, was a fervent abolitionist preacher who moved his family from one Baptist parish to the next throughout New York and Vermont. That's right. Future POTUS Chester Arthur was the son of a preacher man. Oh, you've been thinking about <laughs> that all day. Oh, yeah. You? Yeah. yeah. For like two <laughs> weeks, I've had that in my notes. I even put it in all caps. Who's your favorite person that sang that song? I mean, I go with Dusty Springfield, the original. I haven't heard too many other versions of it. Bobby Gentry? Yeah, Bobby yeah, Gentry. Bobby Gentry. Yeah. 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 The, the original writer of Fancy. And she kind of looks like Casey Musgraves. In oh, the yeah. 70s. Or does Casey Musgraves look like I think her? that's more it. Yeah, yeah. His middle name, Alan, came from his paternal grandfather. But according to some sources, Chester chose to pronounce his middle name with the emphasis on the second syllable. Alan. Oh. Chester Alan so, Arthur. He wanted it to rhyme with flan. <laughs> <laughs> he heard about that dessert once and was like, I like that. I'm going to try that on for mm, size. I'm Chester nice. Alan. That's nice. <laughs> He grew up in Perry, New York, and graduated from Schenectady's Union College in 1848. While he was there at Union, he helped throw the school bell into the Erie Canal as a prank. Yeah. Yeah. And he was once fined 50 cents for writing in one of the books in ink. And that was a lot of money back then. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder what he wrote. They were like, that dang Alon. Just an essay on flan. I like that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like that he was fined for that, but like they were like, he threw the church bell into the eerie, and yeah. he, they were just like, boys will oh, be boys. That's Chester Alon <laughs> Arthur for you. Yeah. He and some other like-minded friends also got into a big brawl with some supporters of James K. Polk, which I found interesting. He was not an outstanding They hated, student. they were the anti-Oregon boys. Just hated them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The AOB. Yeah. He was not fantastic of an academic scholar while he was there. He graduated in 1848, though, in the top third of his class and was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. After graduating, he took a job as... Hold up. Yeah. He got elected to a fraternity? I think based on academic merit, you get... Oh, so it's not one of the ones that they like beat you into? No, he didn't do any... Oh. He didn't do any keg stands no, at Union. Elephant walking to get into that one? <laughs> Look to your left. Look to your right. That's your brother, bro. Oh, yeah. Those guys will be there for you everywhere. As long as you pay this fee. That's right. Now, everybody pay for your friends. <laughs> Barf in this bucket. And then little Billy's going to drink it. After graduating, he took a job as the principal at the North Pownal. I think I'm saying that. Some school, some academy. Pownal? P-O-W. In a L. Pow now. Pow now. Pow now. Pow now. Academy in Vermont. He's back home in Vermont, and this academy was meeting in the basement of Dad's church at the time. Oddly enough, James Garfield taught penmanship there three years later, which I was just kind of interesting, like little ships passing in the night there. Uh, soon after that, he earned his law degree and moved to New York City, where he worked as an attorney for the law firm Culver, Parker, and Arthur. With New his... York City! So he starts as a uh, joins a law firm with his mind on his money and his money on his mind back there in New York City. In 1854, a black school teacher named Elizabeth Jennings was physically forced out of a whites-only horse-drawn streetcar on her way to church. After she refused to leave the car and was shoved around by the conductor and a police officer that was nearby, she sought help from her father, who was a prominent New York tailor, who then contacted Arthur. Arthur and Jennings' legal victory affirmed that the Third Avenue Railroad Company was liable for the acts of its agent and that, quote, that's again, at the time, this is 1854, Colored persons, if sober, well-behaved, and free from disease, end quote, were allowed to ride. Jennings was awarded $225. The court tacked on an extra 10%, as well as court costs. And soon after, all New York City railroad cars were soon integrated. Elizabeth Jennings' case predated Rosa Parks' case in the 1950s by over 100 years. I thought that was interesting. Like, let's share her story and say her name. Parks' defiant act involved racially segregated motor buses in Alabama, launching the historic civil rights movement and of course led by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So that's an interesting part of Arthur's story that he took that case and won it as was common in those days. And it's a little foreshadowing. Yes, it is. Go yeah. ahead. Share, share that, please. No, we'll wait. Oh, Just well. put a pin in that. All right, a and bit. remember he did that because it'll come up later. I, got, I just realized we have two more bottles of wine to drink. So I figured this is a good time to... You don't have to. We just have to have a no, little it's fine, bit right? of each. <laughs> it's fine. It's part of the initiation ceremony. Puke <laughs> yeah. in the bucket. As was common in those days, young unmarried men frequently lived in boarding houses where they took meals in family-style settings, socialized with fellow boarders, and tried to establish the appearance of a home life. Arthur lived in such a family hotel on Broadway in New York City. While there, he befriended a young medical student from Virginia named Dabney Herndon. Nell. Well... Nell comes into the picture through Dabney Herndon, who frequently visited with relatives nearby. Arthur oh, occasionally, right. yeah, that was his buddy. He occasionally accompanied Dabney Herndon on these family visits, and Herndon's cousins, the young Ellen or Nell, 
Herndon soon caught Arthur's eye. The two, she was 21 and he was 30, were married on October 25th, 1859. And her father was William Lewis Herndon, who was a naval captain that at one point traversed the Amazon. He was like a national hero. And then he became another national hero soon after they were married. Yes. um, When he died as a hero at the sinking of Central America. He saved hundreds the, of the, lives. Like the HM or the USS yeah, yeah, Central the, America. It was not a the whole not the whole not, continent. Just dipped right into the ocean there. The, yeah. Fell right off. So this was he, yeah, this was an interesting story. Yeah, so and it, jumping ahead in the story a little bit. He saved hundreds of lives staying mm-hmm. on the boat and getting people onto rescue ships. Correct. And went down with the ship. That's right. And became like a national hero because yeah. the press picked that story up everywhere. Yeah. Think of Chester Arthur coming from the father in the home life that he did to... He having, married way up. Yeah. I mean, that's a long shadow cast by his uh, his father-in-law. Uh, the Civil War breaks out. Arthur stood prime for duty in 1858. Oh, go ahead, Blaine. Before the Civil War, yeah. he was in Kansas right after he got married to Nell. Yes, that's right. He was there during John Brown's raid mm-hmm. and actually attended a debate that was being hosted by John Calhoun. <gasps> <laughs> and that debate ended in gunfire. Uh, <laughs> pow, pow. Yeah, uh, words aren't strong enough. Uh, so then, civil war. What so, was he doing out in Kansas? I remember this vaguely from the book. I think he was like. I think he went out as like a land speculator. Yeah, he, he was, was out there. Realized out. there was real estate to be yeah. had, and then bloody Kansas kind of mm-hmm. blew up while he was yeah. out there. And he was just young and interested yeah. in things that were going on. So he was like gunfire debate. Yeah. I'm in. <gasps> like I think that's called a duel. <laughs> John Calhoun's like, let me tell you about a duel, young man. Yeah. <laughs> Duel with the devil. Isn't most like things that end in gunfire started in debate? Yeah, usually, at least in this country in 1858 out in Kansas. Well, I mean, yeah. in most countries. Yeah, careful now. Most, yeah. Not get shot. Who said, uh, was it James Monroe who was like, grab your pistols, I am ready with with Hamilton? Wasn't that Maybe, Monroe? Yeah. yeah. It was one of the short ones. One of the people that uh, Monroe Randy Newman wouldn't like too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a cool line. I got to go back and listen to. Short uh, people got no reason to live. That one. Are you sensitive about short people? No, I'm oh. singing Randy Newman. Short people got <laughs> yeah. Randy. Oh wait, Randy uh, Newman is. I thought, <laughs> you know what I thought? I thought of the salad dressing guy, um, Paul Newman. Newman. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why does Paul Newman in this episode? Randy Newman's the Toy Story guy. <laughs> you got a friend in me. I don't Gosh. know if it's that gruff. Oh. You got a friend in me. <laughs> okay. That guy sounds amazing. Put him on the soundtrack. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Civil War. Civil War. Uh, in 1858, he joins the state militia, and the Republican governor appointed Arthur to be the engineer-in-chief with the rank of quartermaster general in the New York Volunteers, which he served in that post. He was a very efficient quartermaster, and he obtained the rank of brigadier general, which seems like a, I mean, very quick ascent within rank. Blaine, you're the army expert. I mean, that's fast. Yeah, I think we've covered this a couple Whew. times. Totally normal. Happens all the time. <laughs> Uh, join the military, become general. Yeah, hi, I'd like to sign up for the military, please. Here's a star. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I like stars. Wow. He was on Edward Morgan's staff. And as the quartermaster, while he never saw any battles, yes. he was known for being like pretty good at his job. Yeah, he dealt with like hundreds of private contractors. and Including, there was this character named Billy Williams. Do you remember the stories about that guy? Yeah, he like ran he uh, like the city big... in the sky in Empire Strikes Back. 
And then I think he was the spokesperson for Colt 45 malt liquor after that. He was Landau Calrissian. No, I, I know where you're going with it. Uh, <laughs> so Billy Williams. Sure. He was basically like this Irish Catholic gang leader. Okay. And so there were this group called Billy Wilson's Boys. Like in Gangs of New York? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, quite literally. Yeah. And there were... Billy Wilson's boys, and they just kind of saw the Civil War as like, oh, this will be a fun little scrap to get into. <laughs> and they didn't really want to like listen to anybody and never, you know, follow orders and stuff. Mm. And Arthur would stand up to him. And whenever he would come and like try to scrap with people or yeah. like take stuff from local restaurants or get drunk, they would basically try to like rein them in. Yeah. And Arthur basically was just like, you're not going to get anything from me. And I'm, I've got my shoulder straps, and as long as I wear them, I'm not going to take any orders from you. Oh, wow. That's and cool. And they, they back down, as most huh. bullies do when you get confronted. They're That's like, right. oh, actually, okay. Punch the bully back in the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. good for Chester Arthur standing up to Billy D. Williams. I feel like boys. I didn't do a great job of explaining that story. It was impeccable, and <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> Well, although he was eager to serve in a battlefield position, Arthur never really pressed his case. His wife, Nell, was a Virginian with family members in the Confederacy. Yeah, and they weren't uh, fans of his. Oh, no, and could not tolerate the thought of her husband taking up arms against her kin. Moreover, her sister, uh, so Arthur's sister-in-law, had married an official in the Confederate government who was stationed in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, he retired from duty in 1863. <laughs> After making a boatload of money being the quartermaster. How did he make so much cash plane? Because when there's a way to make money off war, it's the American way to find a way to get as much as you can. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically they would get lobbyist money. Um, they had some insider trading because they would know like when supplies were needed and when demand was going to go up and things like that. And he had, you know, the friendship with Edwin Morgan. Mm -hmm. And so he would feed him info and he would do speculative trading and he had the answers. So yes. he made a bunch of money. Edwin from, Morgan Freeman. And this was just kind of the beginning of his uh, New York. Oh man. Um, corruption. Yeah. Career. Oof, it uh, was brewing. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it's coming. He it's, was ready. Smoking loon. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> this unoaked Chardonnay brought to you by Steelbird Smoking Loon 2019. Oof, it's it's the finest and the worst unoaked Chardonnay I've had all day. So right after the yeah. war, he becomes friends with Roscoe Conkling. He does. Which yes. is such an odd word like name to say out loud. Roscoe, Roscoe Conkling. Conkling. Which, man, at the end of this episode, we're going to get into how Roscoe died. And boy, <laughs> it's... So basically, he just rode Roscoe Conkling's coattails all right. the way up through the vice presidency, yeah, I mean, really. It, while he was in the office, yeah. Conkling was a New York Republican Party boss and a U.S. senator who used patronage like and a boss. Like a boss. And patronage and party discipline to advance his power in the state. Now, every state kind of had their own Roscoe Conkling, but New York. Has always been a huge influential Tammany state. Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in our nation. So Roscoe is, he carries a lot of weight. 
Arthur's professional life uh, is continuing to improve at this time, but he and Nell experience a personal tragedy as their only child at that time, named William, died suddenly that year at the age of two. Uh, The couple took their son's death hard, and when they had another son, Chester Allen Jr., or Alan, I don't know which one it was, in 1864, they lavished attention on their new son. They also had a daughter, Ellen, later in 1871, and both she and her older brother, Chester Allen Jr., survived into adulthood. Uh, By 1867, he had become one of Conkling's top lieutenants. From 1869 to 70, he served as the chief counsel to the New York City Tax Commission, earning an annual salary of $10,000, which back then uh, was a princely sum of money. And in 1870, the wages of a skilled worker ranged from just $400 to $700 annually. So he was balling, thanks to Conkling. He was named in 1871 Collector of the Port of New York by President Ulysses Grant, and he supervised nearly 1,300 agents who collected about 75% of the country's import duties. The agency ran under a system, I learned something in this research, called moiety, M-O-I-E-T-Y, that allowed officials a percentage of the fines or goods that resulted from smuggled goods that they caught coming into port, which allowed Arthur to earn an extra $50,000 a year, or a cool Mm -hmm. million in today's dollars, which was substantially more than his standard $12,000 a year salary at that point. So it's 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes. What did we call his episode? Do you remember? I don't remember. That's okay. We'll go back and look. He's been elected to the White House now, and that already was a very contentious election, if you recall that. Oh, he with, uh, is Samuel Tilden. the imposter, hmm? right? In the imposter world. <laughs> so it definitely wasn't that, because you would have brought it up. Yeah. It had something to do with him being not elected properly okay yeah samuel tilden big deal go back there to episode whatever it was because it's rutherford b hayes so he was known as a big partier when he was the collector of the port of new york he would stay up till 3 a.m smoking like Mm. a loon Mm. and drinking and he started to gain weight Mm. and he became cognizant of that fact so Mm. he started to wear a corset oh did he now Mm. that's fancy with some whalebone in there that's (laughs) what it is whalebone from Old Timothy Dexter. That's right. That's a he bonus had a pickle episode. for the knowing ones. Oh, please, Blaine, do not go onto a pickle for the knowing ones <laughs> diatribe. Please, just don't. He's wearing a corset. Yeah, he's poking up a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's partying his face off. But because he wasn't going to make any lifestyle changes, yeah. he was like, "I'm fat. How do I fix this?" <laughs> There's no liposuction back then. Yeah. There's no treadmills. The concept of a diet and exercise, like. <laughs> Yeah. That's what poor people do. When Hayes was president, he tried to get Theodore Roosevelt Sr. to uh, usurp Arthur. Gosh, what a great Um, word. But Conkling shut it down. And basically at that moment, Teddy Roosevelt Jr., who was a sophomore at Harvard, decided that he was going to spend his career stopping political corruption. Man, I like that part of Teddy's story. Mm-hmm. That runs parallel to Arthur, but just a little bit, a little bit back. His uh, time will come. And then, unfortunately, about a month later, Teddy Senior died. Theodore Senior died. Okay, that's a fun part of Teddy's story that I hope I remember. The part where his dad episodes. dies. Well, no, the part of his. <laughs> no, it's not happy at all. It's very sad. I like to think of. Uh, I like to think of my Teddy Roosevelt at Harvard, <laughs> just boxing everyone. Cream sweatshirt with the turtleneck yep. and a big H on the front. Yep. With his Just glasses saying on. Saying like, I'm formal, but I like to party. <laughs> and I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> yeah. 
One day I'm going to be on Mount Rushmore. What's Mount Rushmore? Oh, it's a mountain we stole. I can fix this football thing. What if you threw the ball? Like you're crazy. No, like shut one up, day Jay. I'm going to have enough power to get this ball thrown. Okay, well, Hayes kicks him out, uh, him being Arthur, not Teddy Roosevelt. That was a fun little bonus episode about Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so he gets canned. Soon after that, on January 12th, 1880, Nell dies due to complications from pneumonia. Her sudden and tragic death at the age of 42 came two days after she attended a benefit concert in New York City while her husband was in Albany on state business. So he didn't want her to come with him to Albany? She didn't come with mm. him. She didn't go to Albany. He feigned like he was sad, although I can't imagine he was all that sad. In his uh, 3 a.m. partying, he had a lot of yeah. trysts, partners, if yeah, you will. I will. He cheated on her a lot. Yeah. Um, cheated on her dead corpse? No, like before she died, he cheated on her a lot. Oh, okay. Now and I get it. So when she died, like he had to really pretend like it bothered him. Yeah. Despite these setbacks, Arthur's political prospects kept improving. In 1880, he was nominated for the vice presidency at the 1880 Republican National Convention thanks to his affiliation with Conkling and the powerful New York Republican faction known as the Stalwarts, which is the only word in the English language that rhymes with my last name. Although Conkling wasn't happy about it. No, he was not. Yeah, he was. uh, In my notes, he was pissed. Yeah. He seemed upset. He got offered the, the vice presidency, and Arthur was like, well, this is probably as far as I can go being yeah. corrupt. Yeah. I could just go back to my corruption. Mm-hmm. Vice presidents don't do anything. So, yeah, I'll do that. Sounds dope. Sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just preside over the Senate and hope he doesn't die. Foreshadowing alert. Well, after the Republican ticket took the contest, Arthur quickly had a falling out, like you said, with, uh, no, not Conkling, but his freshly elected running mate Garfield, who attempted to destroy Conkling's influence in Congress. Well, Conkling resigns from the Senate. Uh, Russ, you shared a little bit about that, I believe, in one of our bonus episodes, or maybe it was last episode with Garfield, right? It was last episode. Many insiders thought Arthur's prestige as vice president would dwindle to nothing. But James Garfield was shot in July 1881 by Charles Guiteau, who had sought a European consulship, and he had stalked Garfield for weeks before the attack. Guiteau, as you heard in last episode, or maybe you haven't, uh, was convinced that Garfield was destroying the patronage system, and the only way to save it was to make Chester Arthur president. By the way, if you want a bonus episode on Charles Guiteau, go become a patron at patreon.com slash presequential. So just to back up a mm-hmm. touch, like I know that we kind of just crescendoed there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to before he was the vice president. It's fine. So Roscoe Conkling had this affair with this woman named Kate Sprague. Sprague. S-P-R-A-G-U-E. Sprague. 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 Okay, Sprague. It looks like Sprague. Whatever. Kate's husband was Senator William Sprague. One day he came home early from a business trip. Oh, I remember this. <laughs> and Conkling was this at is, the house. Yeah. He, uh, a few high words ensued, uh, and then Sprague went upstairs to retrieve his shotgun, found out that he didn't have any percussion caps, so he went to town to get some. What's a percussion cap? Uh, like, I would assume, I'm guessing at the time they needed, like, a thing to set the, the boom. So he's like, you guys stay here. Yeah. I'm going to go to Dick's Sporting Goods. Told Conkling to leave. Conkling was like, I'm staying. And he's like, cool, I'll be right back. It's fine. He goes, comes Keep back. Keep hooking up with my wife. Still mad. He pulls out his pocket watch and he says if he doesn't leave in 30 seconds, he's going to blow Conkling's brains out. So at that point, a carriage pulls up because somebody had called Conkling an Uber uh, while, <laughs> while Sprague was Which was, was in an town. insult back then. Yeah. 
Conkling ends up leaving through the bedroom window, still trying to pull his pants up. Oh. Gets in the carriage, goes off. All right, so Sprague follows Conkling into town. Okay. And he, Conkling comes up and tries to calm him down. Because, you know, that's that typically works. Bro, bro, bro. Settle yeah, down, bro. Look, bro, look, bro. Man, it was just, bro, come on. It was, come on, it was man. fine. Buddy, buddy, uh, buddy. He... Ends up, it, this only fueled the rage of the Rhode Islander, shockingly. Oh, you didn't uh, tell me he was from Rhode Island. Who denounced Conkling violently and told him plainly he'd had enough of his intimacy with Mrs. Sprague mm. and did not propose to have any more of it. <laughs> then he asked Conkling if he was armed. Conkling said no, and he said, then go arm yourself and hereafter go armed. I don't intend to shoot an unarmed man, but I'll tell you now that if you ever cross my path again, I will shoot you on sight. And that was the end of the Sprague incident. Those are two senators having words in some New York dusty street. Mm-hmm. Man, I like that. Yeah. That's it's great. like, make sure you always have a gun. Yeah. Because at least when I shoot you, I won't be shooting an unarmed That's, right. That's an awesome threat. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> also, oh, the man. level of self-control to not just shoot him. Man, I like those fighting words. Real quick catch up. Yep. Uh, Arthur became VP. Guto kills Garfield. Yep. Arthur's president now. We're caught up. And we're back. Okay, so at 2.15 <laughs> a.m. on September 20th, 1881. Now, we should say Garfield kind of languished for several months. Right. Uh, like, yeah, dying. 51-year-old Chester Arthur on September 20th, 1881, became the 21st president of the United States in the parlor of his New York City apartment a mere six and a half months after being sworn in as VP. Now, he was just as astonished at everyone else that he was now president. Legend has it that a Republican friend of Arthur's, upon hearing the news, said, quote, Chet Arthur? President of the United States? Good God. <laughs> Not the, everyone was a big fan that he was going to now be a commander-in-chief. I believe he's the only president that's ever been sworn in in his own home. He was. He was the first president <laughs> to take the oath of office in his own home. Blaine, I award you all the meaningless Thank bonus you. points. He also, when he was announced as VP, yes. had to have a ring filed off his hand. He did. Because he shook so many hands, his hands swole up. And they were and they bleeding. they file off the yeah. ring from his hand. Yeah, he was yeah. like, I can't shake this many hands. My hands are porking up. I need a corset for my fingers. <laughs> this was the second presidential inauguration to take place in New York City. Do you guys remember the first presidential inauguration to take place in New York? George Washington. It is. Ding, 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 ding. George oh, Washington oh. at Federal Hall on Duh. Wall Street. Duh. I was thinking, who's been sworn in who's as a vice president? Who's have your boots been under? Sorry, what were you saying More before I jumped uh. into Shania Twain? <laughs> <laughs> well, so first of all, this uh, Arthur's brownstone became more famous for becoming a falafel joint. <laughs> so check this out, okay? So 123 Lexington Avenue in between 28th and 29th in New York City is since the nexus ni- of the universe. Since 1944, there's been an Indian grocer there that is known at least on Yelp for its falafel. And there is a bronze plaque on that building in New York City. It was unveiled in 1981 by a now defunct historical society. <laughs> And it hangs right next to the front door of the residence and the Indian grocer. In 1986, the Historical Association of New York placed a plastic bouquet of flowers <laughs> next to the plaque with, with a minute-long ceremony 
to remember the 100th anniversary of Arthur's death. So which Central American country like loves this guy? <laughs> the plastic bouquet of flowers was taken away one minute later. <laughs> so they lasted as long as the ceremony. Exactly. Hey, on that fun note, we're going to take a break so you can hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. You're listening to episode 21, The Walrus <laughs> of the Presidential Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Ryan. Every college has that one professor whose class was so popular students lined up to get a spot before they graduate. One Day University brings over 200 of these top-rated professors together online to present incredible live stream talks based on their most popular courses. Professors are selected from schools across the country including Yale, Stanford, Harvard, UCLA, Michigan, Columbia, and many more. Every weekday, One Day University offers a new one-hour live stream talk followed by a live Q&A with the professor. Members also get access to a library with over 500 past recorded talks available on demand. You can learn something new every day about history, politics, art, science, music, psychology, whatever you want to learn. There's no homework or tests, just the joy of learning new things from incredible professors. Memberships are just $8.95 a month or $89 a year, but you can try two weeks for free. Plus, if you use the code PRESEQUENTIAL and sign up for an annual plan, you'll get your first year for half off. Learn more and start your two-week free trial at onedayu.com slash presequential. That's onedayu, the letter, dot com slash presequential. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you are in the market to refinance your mortgage and want an expert to walk you through that process, you need to schedule a call today with Austin Bowman at Caliber Home Loans. Austin's been a friend of mine for years and is one of Caliber's top performing loan consultants with over 14 years of experience and expertise. Austin's number one priority is honesty. He's going to listen to your unique needs and guide you through Caliber's superior processing, underwriting, and closing process. For a smooth, hassle-free process from application to closing on your new mortgage, email Austin Bowman today at austin.bowman, that's B-O-W-M-A-N, at caliberhomeloans.com. You can also find Austin's email in our show notes. Whatever you do, don't ask Austin about the time when he took me out for my first time golfing when we were 16 and we almost hit a goose with our cart. Guys, email austin.bowman at caliberhomeloans.com today. Hey, we're back. Thanks to our sponsor, greekspizzeria.com. It's our taste. Go get you some delicious pizza pie. We're also on our second bottle of wine, Blaine. Is that is that correct? Do you want to tell the good people about the second bottle of wine that we're on? Yeah, so this smoking loon has started to show some perseverance. Hmm. As he works his way through his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in honor of that, we have a Perseverance wine. Mm-hmm. This uh, is Chardonnay from California. I'll let you describe it. This Ryan. is a 2019. Uh, it has like Irish Gaelic font. Yeah, that's fair. It's a Chardonnay from California. And mm. on the first sip, it tastes just like the other wine. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's got that going for it. Most people believe that Chester Arthur, who had no real government experience at all and had never been elected to any office in his life before becoming vice president under Garfield, would appoint Roscoe Conkling to his cabinet and let his patron run the show. Conkling, in fact, showed up in Washington before the inauguration and demanded to be made secretary of state, but Arthur showed him the door. So I think there's a couple things. Let's cover a couple things first, because we're about to see a pretty massive shift in Arthur's character. Yes. Up to this point, if you haven't been able to tell, 
Arthur has kind of worked his way through his career using corruption. And I've got a couple of examples. So obviously, like the, the whole collector of the port of New York. Totally different corrupt. than the pork collector of yeah. New York. It's uh, a whole different role. Or the pork collector where he's just collecting wine. Fortified um, dessert wine. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take uh, that. Well, I mean, he did love after dinner liqueurs. I wouldn't be surprised if he drank some port collector. I wonder if he was like, hey, guys, look, I'm the port collector. <laughs> <laughs> Take that stupid corset off. Yeah. I can't breathe. Okay. There's not enough oxygen. That's why my jokes suck. Are you growing tusks? So after Garfield won, he's kind of going around giving speeches as vice president. And yeah. he's... Oh, we're, this, so we're kind of backing up to that. Yeah. Okay, that, okay. I said we're going to back up for yeah. a second so we can really emphasize the shift. Mm. Um, so he's giving a speech here in the great state of Indiana at a place called Delmonico's, which I can only imagine was an Italian restaurant. Delmonico's is a famous steak restaurant in New York City. This is in Indiana, you, and it's okay. Delmonico's. Maybe it was a branch, uh, like a or franchise. it was an Italian restaurant just off the 65-70 split. I'm just throwing out where this place could have been yeah. by guessing uh, <laughs> next to a bowling alley. So he said in this speech, Indiana, I suppose, was a democratic state. But it always been put down in the book that might be carried by close and careful, perfect organization. And then huh. he kept going on about how, like, reporters are here, so I'm not going to tell you what we did. <laughs> uh, let's just say... We have some intimate friends and devoted adherence to the Republican Party. Oh. And basically all he was saying was like, we bought this election. We bought um, this election. And we bought it here specifically in Indiana. Hmm. And you guys all know that, but I can't say it out loud because reporters are here, but I'm going to get right up to the fence without crossing it. <laughs> he gave him a little wink. And everybody was like, yeah. I think at one point What's he up? was like... You know, there was a great deal of, and all the audience was like, soap. It was soap. And he was like, yeah, soap. Yeah, they gave it. us a lot of soap, and now I'm the vice president. And thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you, thank you. Thank you. I got to go loosen this girdle. Passing out whiskers for you, all you uh, later. So Garfield ends up nominating this guy named Robertson as the port collector of New York, who was, so Garfield was like famously anti-corruption yep. for six months, because he associated corruption only happened on Mondays, and Garfield was like not on my watch and <laughs> bring me some lasagna so conkling and what is russ it? and i are both shaking platt our heads. who is what's platt's first name sylvia <laughs> sylvia. Uh, sylvia sylvia platt first of all indiana voted uh, republican in that election i know i just said that he said bought were, you said they were democratic he, I, I did you're right he said oh, indiana's a democratic state don't worry we yeah, yeah, bought yeah. it no i just started listening right? okay i clearly yeah okay uh so Sylvia Platt. Give and take. Go ahead. <laughs> so I can only assume it's Sylvia Platt because I only wrote down Platt. Roscoe Conkling and Russ has it. It is Thomas C. Platt. Mm. Same thing. And Roscoe Conkling and probably Sylvia. They all resigned in protest because Garfield put an anti-corruption person in charge of the port of New York. That's right. So they're no longer senators. And Conkling goes back to New York and he's like, ha, really showed them. <laughs> what he didn't know was that was the beginning of the end of his career. Yeah. Because he just assumed I have so much power and I've been able to be corrupt and I've been able to corrupt so many things. I'm really going to stick it to this Garfield guy and yeah. show him I can resign and I can come out on top like Russ because Russ always comes out on top. Pride comes before the fall. Yeah, it did. He went back. Or sometimes the pride comes after the fall because like like in the you, winter. No, like you throw your brother off a mountain and he falls and then you get the pride. 
That's a Lion King reference. Yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, the actual literal great, pride. Ru- great Lion King reference, Blaine. The literal Ryan. pride. <laughs> you know, I was just looking up Scar and Mufasa memes today for a friend. <laughs> and you didn't catch that reference right away? really. I didn't know you meant literal pride. Yeah. Oh, man. Sometimes the pride comes after the fall. So to your point. <laughs> yes, great. The public was not jazzed about Arthur becoming the president. They they kind of always just assumed Conkling was going to run things behind the mm-hmm. scene. So I think that there was a couple of, of driving factors here in the change that we're about to see. Mm-hmm. One being Arthur didn't like the idea of the public thinking someone else is going to run the country. Two, he always kind of revered Garfield and the high character that he had, even though it was against his interests, I think he always kind of admired Garfield stood up to corruption. Yeah. And so when Garfield died, and I don't have the quote, but I do remember in the book, there was a moment that he basically had an aha. And he was like, that was such a good man. And mm-hmm. he was actually like the right person mm-hmm. to lead the country. If I now have to fill his shoes, I need to change how I approach things. Yeah. I don't know the exact quote you're talking about, but there was one that's, you know, alongside it that I remembered and I'm going to not get this a hundred percent right, but he said the convention made me vice president, but Providence or the divine made me president. So when Conklin came to him and tried to run the show, he showed him the door with that quote saying like, listen, man, I I thought vice president was as high as I was going to go. And that was on thanks to you. Thanks to all your cronies. And he knew like, this is going to lead to these guys running me through the mud yeah. and exposing me as a corrupt person. And I'm just going to have to lean on the fact yeah. that I'm not going to be corrupt anymore. I'm going to go after corruption yeah. and like try to show people I'm actually changed. And if anyone knew corrupt, it was Arthur. You know, yeah. I mean, he, he knew it. He was part of that system. And so it really shocked not just the party, but the entire nation that he was now one president, but two going to embrace civil service reform. I actually have that quote written down that you were talking about. Yeah, go ahead. For the vice presidency, I was indebted to Mr. Conkling, but for the presidency, my debt is to the almighty. Mm. And then there was also this whole, and I don't know if this is a good time for it, but you let me know the Julia Sand stuff. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Did, oh, you didn't read the book, Russ. No. Um, the, <laughs> I should, I, before you the go first there. time I've been able to weasel that joke in. <laughs> yeah, <it was> good. <laughs> Russ skimmed one book on the vice presidents. Hold on. We'll get uh, to you. Yeah, I get it. But I read every single word of the book. <laughs> I believe I, you. No, I do believe, I believe you. you. I, I believe you. I, as long as I've known Russ, I believe... Like, I actually, if I'm not mistaken, you read that entire book way before we ever started this project. Yeah. Correct. We okay. joke, yeah. but you read yeah. the book. Yeah. I sure did. Russ and I have been down many a Wikipedia holes. <laughs> Reading a book on every vice president is right up his alley. Before we get into Julius Sands' story okay. with Chester Arthur, I should say that only the Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, kept his job in Arthur's cabinet. That I mean, name sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. That's right. He was actually <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of a rabbit trail. Robert Todd Lincoln a Robert trail. was present, of course, the day that his father mm. was shot. And, yeah. And Arthur's predecessor, Garfield, he was there. Yeah. And then McKinley and later. Then he went nuts. And, and he was like, listen, don't invite me to anything. Yeah. I'm never allowed to go anywhere. Someone yeah. will get shot in the head. Yeah. It's crazy. That's, I mean, can you imagine? Gosh. Like, especially knowing 
the advances we have in like mental health knowledge now. Yeah. Like what type of trauma that guy lived with. Yes. What is that? Survivor's guilt? Is that what it's called? I mean, it's way further than that, I feel like. Yeah. The type of trauma that dude had to carry with him for the rest of his life. Like I understand why he was like, please stop inviting me to things. Like not only is it bad luck, but like I can't take another one on. Yeah. He said, quote, a certain fatality about the presidential function when I am present exists. Yeah. Like which a... Not true. Like, there's a thing right. called coincidences. Right, right. Uh, but I bet you he 100% believed it. Yeah. That, man. Yeah. I can't imagine. That's a burden yeah. that he carried through life. Absolutely. Let's talk about Julia Sand. Okay. So, I'm going to try to go off memory here. So, okay. Ju- it, this the situation's weird, right? It, it is. It, yeah. So, Julia Sand was essentially an invalid. She lived with her family... I don't know if she was in. She might she was have been bedridden at the least. Yeah, she was somewhat of a recluse. Let's just say that. Okay, yeah. that's fair. Uh, but I, I think she had some health issues, and she was basically confined to bed for most of the time. Okay, she would write letters to Arthur going back to when he was the vice president. She was bedridden due to spinal trouble. She was constantly writing letters to Arthur, advising him what to do. Mm-hmm. She'd never met the guy. He read all of them. Yes, he did. And, in some instances, he took her advice. He kept like an actual folder, like a special right. folder. He saved all of her letters. Yeah. So yeah. like, and I got this confused that my grandparents just last week went to Garfield's museum. Yeah, you mentioned that And they that brought last, a last book episode. that were just love letters between Garfield and Crete. Lucretia. Yeah. Crete mm-hmm. is what he called her. And I knew that she had passed away. And I was like, was he the one that had the weird mm-hmm. letter writer? And it, then it hit me. It was Arthur. Yeah. She wasn't like a stalker. She actually raised some interesting yeah, points. Like she, it was, she would look at things and be like, here's what I think you should do. And at times, he would take that advice. And at one point, he, was, he just so happened to be like in her town and went and visited her. Yeah. August uh, 20th, 1882. He arrived in, quote, this is from Julia, in a wonderful short rig with two men on the box in claret livery, which basically he rolled in with a little bit of a security entourage, sure. gets out of the presidential carriage. And, and she had actually and she's been... she's upstairs in bed. Yeah. He comes had, in, her parents are... The, this seems like a romantic comedy part, She right? had been... Like expre- in the Chester Arthur romantic yeah, comedy, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's when he shows up, yeah. she comes down, she takes her glasses off, and they're like, oh, she was beautiful the whole time. Oh. And... <laughs> Shakes her hair out in slow-mo. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. is going to play Jester Arthur. <laughs> I feel like we could write this movie. How hard is it to write a romantic comedy? It can't Not be hard. hard. It can't be hard. Not with actual historical <laughs> truths <laughs> like these. Yeah. So he comes in. Yeah, he meets he, like, her. He meets her mom and dad. Yeah, and they're like... They have dinner. But I don't think... If I remember right, I don't think the family knew she was writing all these letters. He walks in and they're like... Uh, uh, the president's here. That's why it seems like a romantic comedy yeah, is yeah. when like the dad meets the president and yeah. he's like, you're here to meet my daughter. I recognize like, his portrait yeah. from the papers. Yeah. So, and then they end up chatting for a while. Yeah. I don't think they ever met again. No. She continued to write him letters yep. and he held them like pretty near and dear. Like he yeah. kept the letters. He did. I think. They might even be in his library. I don't know. You're right, though. He actually took her advice in, was it one of the acts that nobody's ever heard about? And she died. She never made a spectacle about herself or her. I mean, it was a legitimate relationship. Shadow presidency. Now, granted, he was was a widower at this point. Right. Right. So Mm -hmm. this, this woman writing him a letter, you know, not daily, but often... 
wouldn't have been necessarily weird, but the fact that he kept it and actually followed her advice, it's just so random. Yeah. It's just so crazy. What were the movies? The Sands of Time? That's the name of the movie, right? <laughs> Sands of Time. It's just <laughs> a picture of a walrus in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to make it like a put a weird indie twist to it, it would be the dude that played Frodo. Like, because that's what he does now is those weird indie uh, movies. He, that was, um, hold on. Uh, Frodo. Who was it? Elijah Wood. Oh, I was thinking uh, Sean Austin. Oh, no. What? Aston no. Austin. Sean Austin. No, that's not Frodo. He played Sam. Sure. I'm not a Lord of the Rings fan. Who was the guy who played Frodo? Elijah Wood. Oh, yeah. Huck I Finn. didn't know that. Huck Finn. Yeah. I've got friends. I didn't read those books. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you did, you probably still wouldn't know that Elijah Wood was the main guy. Elijah. I think all those dudes got tattoos uh, while they were filming in So New did Zealand. lots of other nerds. Yeah. It's nine hours of people walking. <laughs> all right. Spoiler alert. What's the guy's name? Peter? <laughs> is it Peter Jackson? Yeah. Is that his name? He's doing a Beatles documentary. He is. Yeah. Didn't he do the colorized it's, World War II documentary? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I think he did. I think he colorized a World War II documentary. Or was that Ken Burns? No, Ken Burns doesn't care about color. He doesn't see it. <laughs> He just like pans from the bottom yeah. left to if, the, pan, the yeah. bo- top right. He wouldn't right. do 72 hours on baseball if he wanted things in color. Dude, Ken Burns. <laughs> Ken Burns. Let's see what he's covered. He's covered jazz, the baseball. Civil War, baseball. All of baseball. The Old West. And like literally nothing's happened since that baseball documentary. It's and his hair still looks like a Lego man <laughs> from the Middle Ages Lego set wearing a helmet. <laughs> It looks like he's wearing a medieval helmet. Oh, man. Hopefully you have some perseverance um, oh, for this good. section of mm, the podcast. I do. Arthur commissioned... But isn't this what people listen for? <laughs> yeah, really? This, this, is why, <laughs> this is why you're listening right now. Uh, we do want to give a shout out, by the way, to all of our patrons and our mystery booze sponsor, who will not be named, has requested not to be named. Princess's son. Yes. Cheers and thank you. Let's get another cheers in. Yes. Cheers to you for listening this deep in the Presequential Podcast. To the captain. Oh, yes. And the walrus, Chester Arthur. All right. Chester Arthur's first address to Congress. Mm-hmm. You have this? You want me to go with this? I don't. I, I was going to talk about the repairs he did to the White House, but you go oh, first. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So go. first address to Congress, mm-hmm. which is now what we consider the State of the Union. This mm-hmm. is the precursor of the State of the Union. At the time, they were still writing it and sending it to Congress, and somebody else would read yeah, it. Yeah, and the Constitution, it was like the president shall from time to time. Yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. we're actually relatively rapidly coming up on the first like modern State of the was Union. Was it Wilson? Who started we'll there. the modern one? Okay. We're, we're like I said, relatively yeah. rapidly getting there. His main message was he wanted to reform civil service. Yep. And he wanted to further, well, at that point, it furthered the gap between him, Roscoe Conkling, and your cousins, the stalwarts. <laughs> uh, Should we just define what civil service is for those people who might be listening? Might yeah, be like, yeah. What, what the so heck is civil service? If you're, I mean, really, there, it covers a lot of things, like bus drivers. That would be a civil service job. Yep. Uh, people that, that work at the unemployment office, that's a civil service job. That, like, we've covered the port of New York, so the folks that are, like, receiving the ships yeah. and checking off what comes in. So basically, anything in local government yeah. would be considered civil service. And up to that point, it had basically been doled out via patronage. Like, yeah, hey, like you've, you've been with buddy. me since day one. You get yeah. the job, pal. And you can create your own rules. So right. if you want to collect the fines yourself, 
Yep. Feel free. Yeah. Uh, so what they were trying to do was standardize everything. Okay. So that what they did was they put in a civil service test, and I believe that went in under Hayes. Okay. But what quickly happened with the civil service test was there was one test. That was it for Oof. everybody. So they would pass out the answers, and they would be like, hey, you're going to have to take a test. Here are the answers to the test. Hmm. Some people still failed that test. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So what they they wanted to uh, reform the civil service test. So and you still to this day to get certain jobs in local government have to take a civil service test. And I think there was a debate about like how hard is too difficult of an exam and how easy is too easy of an exam. So they they want to standardize the test with making it to where you actually have to study for it. And you actually have to know your job to be able to get the job. As opposed to just being handed Handed to you. you, (laughs) He still felt in his heart that he owed Conkling something. So at the time, he decided to extend an olive branch and offer Conkling a spot on the Supreme Court. (laughs) That is choice. Thankfully for everyone that lived probably from 1882 to 1950, right. he turned it down. Yeah, because um, I think he thought, hey, I can make more money screwing people over through Tammany Hall back home. And Conkling essentially just went into a deep depression at this point. And, and at the very tail end of the episode, we'll talk about the journey that he took yeah. that caused his death. But um, Literal journey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he realized at that point, like, holy crap, the machine that I built mm. just collapsed in on me. I know that he's just offering me the spot on the Supreme Court as, you know, penance. Yeah. And I'm not going to take it. I'm going to stay depressed. Like, he's the beginning of the French Revolution when the revolutionaries mm. turned the guillotines on them. Oof. It <laughs> like, started to eat its own tail. Yeah. Do you think Arthur at that point said, well, I offered Conkling this amazing position. I've done what I need to do. I'm uh, wash, washing my hands of it. Do you think he said, okay, screw this guy from the, from this point on? Not necessarily I, no, in those terms. I but. don't think he did. I think it was from Conkling. I think Conkling mm. was like, you turn your back on us. Yeah. We gave you everything. I made you who yeah, you are. I made you. Like, it's real. Like, that feels Star Wars-y, right? Yeah, a like, little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And yeah, Arthur's right. like, I have the high ground. Yeah. And Conkling, like, just burning in this pit of lava. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Oof. I didn't realize there was a volcano in New York City, <laughs> but I guess there is. How much would that suck to fall into a volcano, by the way? Do you think you would feel it? Don't you sometimes see like volcanic like stuff coming down and just want to touch it? Like, like you a know, bit. yeah, like yeah. it looks so gorgeous. Just, it, it, looks it looks fun to touch. It looks beautiful. So smooth. Oh, man. Shout out to all of our listeners uh, near Vesuvius, <laughs> circa 43 AD. Okay. <sighs> you so, guys are the real heroes. Back to you, Brian. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just here for these. I'm just here for these asides. Like, (laughs) I love them. There's like four people that tune in. They're like, Blaine's going to go on a tangent about something legitimately historical here. Like, I go on plenty of tangents, but like, I'm good for once an episode. Do a real deep dive into some random horse crap. And then I bring up Vesuvius. <laughs> okay, so uh, Arthur commissioned massive repairs before settling into the White House and finally moved into the residence in December of 1881, three months after taking the oath of office. What were the repairs? I'd be interested to see, like, the presidents that built the White House, they right? Because were thorough. Well, because if you think about it through time, right, There, like, there's probably five or six that made the massive renovations. So right? Adams moved in mm-hmm. first— Jefferson set up his mastodon bones. Yep. 
Uh, Madison, Monroe had to come Madison back after first the fire. Had it burned down on his watch. Well, but I'm saying I'm yep. talking Monroe. about the repairs, right? Yeah, sure, so sure. there were plenty of people that lived through it. This might have been the first one until maybe Truman did his huge yeah, well, overhaul. Truman's was yeah they tore it down and rebuilt yeah, it. Yeah, kept the walls and then rebuilt yeah. everything else. But then there had to be some new modernization of. No, the I current think there age. were. Well, there was there were small changes here and there. But I mean, even if you go through like plenty of presidents we've talked about where it's in complete disrepair. Yeah, and then you you get like the right first lady that's yes. like, nope, this won't work. Let's Women, fix man, it. dude, yeah. wives Careful. just know how. Like, <laughs> no, but if you get a good wife and she's like, this needs to go here, that needs to go there. We're getting rid of this. Like, yo. They yeah. know how to run some things. Come on. Sure. Yeah. To your point, I do uh-huh. think that the first lady has a lot to do with that because there's, yes. we have talked about how like some first ladies have come in and been like, what were you doing? Yeah. And, and you know, maybe if we study it, it could be some presidents that didn't have first ladies or that did, but were sick or something. And yeah. they didn't care what the, if this people were spitting tobacco juice on the ground. Yep. Um, but so he does a major remodel. And, and also he didn't have a first lady. Right. I think it was his younger sister, perhaps, uh, who he tapped was it his, his social hostess. Because his daughter was too young, because he was really, really cognizant to keep his daughter out of the limelight. Yeah. Ellie, right? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Um, he had two kids at this point who survived. I think he adulthood. called her Nellie, is what it was. Mm. I think after her mom. Yeah. But he was really big on being private and yeah. out of the limelight. Well, he hired Louis Tiffany. Have you heard that name before? Did they have breakfast there? They did. Okay. They designed it in like a deep blue something. Something. Yeah. I said, you say we have nothing in common, Blaine. Well, I say that's one thing we've got. <laughs> I'm so proud of us that we made that sound <laughs> conversational. <laughs> well, anyway, he hires this guy named Louis Tiffany, who was about to get really famous. Is it the same guy? I mean, I, it's we the joke. same guy. Okay. It's the same guy who made eventually, he went into lamps and glass, but he wasn't there yet. He was kind of burgeoning in his career. Huh, that's and, fascinating. And Chester Arthur hired this guy to decorate and redesign the residence. And he eventually spent over $2 million in today's dollars so, uh, on what, the project. Grand? Yeah, give or take. (laughs) To help cover some of the costs, Arthur had 24 wagon loads of old furniture, drapes, and other household items sold at auction, some of which dated back to the Adams administration and were actually priceless. So like he was like, yeah, get rid of that. Go ahead. Oh, and some (laughs) dude on HGTV was like, I'll give you 50 bucks. And then (laughs) sounds fine. Yeah. Best I can do is 50 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Pawn stars. And then they turn around and they're like, this thing's worth $4 million. So did his vice president, I'm assuming he had a vice president, did his vice president have anything to do with the remodel of the White House? Now, Russ, uh, you're bald, beautiful, and know a lot about vice presidents. (laughs) Tell us, what did Chester Arthur's vice president do at this time? Chester Arthur did not have a vice president. (gasps) Clutch your pearls. Seriously? Watch out. Wow. But he did have a senator from Vermont named George Edmonds. Everybody needs a senator from Vermont. (laughs) Yeah. He would just sit in his chair with his mittens. Cross-legged. Cross-legged. Wearing a Patagonia (laughs) jacket. I mean, it's it's not really far off. (laughs) That's fantastic. Che Guevara t-shirt underneath. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Russ, please tell us what this senator from Vermont. Yeah. um, So he was the Senate pro tempore. He, oh, sorry, what, Blaine, what did you say? He, he got rid of everyone's student loan debt. Oh, no. man. Loved Maybe. listening to fish. <laughs> <laughs> Just smelled like pot all the time. He's like, I am once again asking you to not be the vice president. He Go was ahead, the Senate Russ. pro tempore 
for Arthur's... Alan Arthur. <laughs> George F. Edmonds was the senator from Vermont, and like he was known for being the crotchety old man of the Senate at that Vermont time. Vermont has Sounds turned familiar. several of those out. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. they're familiar. <laughs> Did he feel the burn? Did he feel the burn? Yeah, he felt yeah. the burn, Okay, yeah. obviously. I think people get it. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about Bernie Sanders. He's a socialist senator from Vermont. He was known as being a acerbic debater. Acerbic oh, is a great yeah. word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is a good word. So mm-hmm. not from Serbia, but yeah. Not from it. Serbia. Right. Montenegro, um, though. Yeah. <laughs> a bitingly critical, sarcastic, or ironic in temper, mood, or tone is acerbic. Floor is yours, Russ. Go ahead, Hold Russ. On. Tell us did what you, you... Did you Google that that quickly? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I didn't know if that was just from the top of your head. Oh, no. Sir. I, I apple-teed that baby. Azerbaijan. Yeah. Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. So he liked the status quo. You know, let's not change anything. He was more This of is how a, we've always done it. Yeah, this is yeah. how we've always done it. And he was a classic this is how contrarian. How we've done it. Like, what? Contrarian. Those two things don't match. Contrarian. Like, you can't like things how they were always done and be a contrarian. Well, you can be a contrarian in a place where people are trying to change things. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he was, quote, contrary-minded... And would normally say no in a New England town meeting type of way. What's, what's that way? I have no idea. <laughs> it was a quote. That. that was a quote, everybody. Okay. So the Edmonds Act was the act to outlaw polygamy. So now he's against polygamy. Okay, he's against polygamy. Here's the thing. Uh-huh. Is that it made polygamy a felony in federal territories. But you did not actually have to be married in order to be accused of polygamy. Hmm. You could be sharing a household with multiple, one man, multiple women. Okay. That sounds very similar to how Arthur grew up in those, what what do they call them, the shared houses in New York? Boarding houses. Yeah. 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 Okay. Also did not have to be living in a house with multiple women in order to be accused of polygamy you could just follow the tenets of the church of latter-day saints oh yeah yeah oh so i mean it was so it was very targeted it was very targeted okay yeah okay yeah i mean and and as a result you weren't allowed to vote yeah it was was a very targeted okay so this was a way to persecute mormons absolutely 100 percent. like they weren't they weren't trying to hide it at all okay yeah and then they named car awards after him yeah, eventually. Yeah. yeah, I it lost makes sense. that. I lost that. Edmonds. Edmonds, they're like the Blue Book. Yeah, it's, you know Kelly's yeah. Blue Book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's after that guy. Kelly's yeah. Blue Book. That was a good Lion King two reference. <laughs> there, buddy. So he was described as, um, you know what? I'm good. Polygamy. Okay. We're good. <laughs> That's I like. So this is the Senate pro tem. Senate pro tem. Yeah. That Anti- might be my favorite <laughs> Russ segment. He was described, you know what? You know I'm what? good. I'm good. Thanks, I think Russ. we summed it up. George uh, F. Edmonds. George F. Edmonds. Of Vermont. Now, uh, you may not know this, but did they go back in the day, like together, being both from Vermont? Possibly, because okay. after he offered the Supreme Court position to, to Conklin. Roscoe Conklin, yeah. he then offered it to George Edmonds, who okay. declined. Mm, and then naturally. they gave it to some other guy. Mm-hmm. Huh. So that Supreme Court position was alone again, naturally. Yes. Wow. 
So who? Okay, so he he basically offered Supreme Court position to two dudes, and they both said no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that uncommon at the time. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Russ, uh, thank you as always for that riveting look into our vice presidency, or in this case, an anti-polygamist Senate pro tempore. Thank you very, very much. You're welcome. We're going to take a quick break, refresh our delicious, and I say that with air quotes, perseverance Chardonnay. Oh no, we're going to start the other one next. Why do we have a third bottle of wine We don't have to have any of it, Ryan. (sighs) You're listening to episode 21, The Walrus. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you need custom-made t-shirts for your team or organization, look no further than our good friends here in Indy, The Art Press. The Art Press is a local, eco-friendly small business that's been around for years here in Indy, designing and printing all the super comfortable shirts you may have seen through their parent company's store, Vardigan. We've worked with them on our awesome new shirts that feature Thomas Jefferson writing a fire-breathing mastodon, and our experience couldn't have gone better. If you need help creating a design or you have your artwork ready to print, Derek and the team at The Art Press can help you get your orders set up online quickly and easily. Plus, they ship everywhere and offer excellent customer service. Get a quote on your order of shirts today at theartpress.com. That's theartpress.com. Blaine, you look different. Did you get a haircut? Oh, I did. Thanks for asking. Oh, it looks nice. People have been noticing more often since I've started going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Say that one more time. Uh, People have noticed... More often since I've been going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Chop Chop. Yeah. It's this super cool, very clean spot over by 16th and College area. Oh, yeah. 16th and Yandis, if you will. Okay, I will here uh, in Indy. Yeah, super cool building, old school style barbershop. Anthony always fades me up well. He leads this diverse team of three other barbers. All three of my kids get their haircuts there. Even my wife gets her haircut. Oh, they there. do ladies' cuts yeah, too. From, you know, fades to braids and everything in between. I love that. And if I wanted more info, where could I go? I would check out, personally, chopchopbarbers.com. Okay, chopchopbarbers.com. From fades to braids to kitty cuts to the coolest barbershop there is. I don't want to look bad, so I'm going to go to Chop Chop Barbershop. Yeah. Doop, doop. Yeah. Welcome back to episode 21 on Chester Arthur. Brought to you by Greek's Pizzeria, our great friends at Greek's mm, Pizzeria. We love them. Go get yourself a Greek's Pizza at greekspizzeria.com. It's our taste. It is our taste. It's our taste. So we've talked about, so Arthur's the president now, uh-huh, yeah. and he's gone from a, a very corrupt upbringing in his career to being the president and deciding that he is not going to be corrupt anymore and that he is going to fight corruption and to that I say hats off. This is a 20 something <laughs> 2019 another the third 2019 California Chardonnay. Blaine, that was an amazing segue Thank into you. this third bottle of wine. I can't tell you how excited I was trying to think like <laughs> I knew I had to pick wine for Chester Arthur. I knew yeah. I wanted to do white wine. It's good. And I was standing there looking like, is there a New York wine? There weren't any New York wines no. from the Finger Lakes, which is the wine region from of New York. Lakes. And I saw Hats Off. And I was like, Hats Off, that'd be a cool one. Mm. Like, what can go with this? And then I saw Smoking Loon, and I was like, I can tell a story with yes. wine if I find the right middle one. And I was so excited about it. So You're what, a wordsmith. Thanks for... Coming with us on this journey of wine through Chester Arthur, <laughs> through Californian wines. 
you know this uh, this third bottle really has a curious blend of inviting aromas and delicious <laughs> flavors of oak and uh, gosh, what is that? Green apple and uh, a soft fruity finish. No, that's just the microphone, Ryan. You, that's what the microphone smells like. All right, so okay, all right, Chinese so immigration bill. Thank you. Oh man, let's talk about <laughs> Arthur being against Chinese people. In 1882, he signs the Chinese exclusion. Oh, there is green Act. apple in there. That wasn't repealed until World War II, if you can believe that. I, I'm shocked that it was repealed in World War II the way we were treated. I mean, Chinese. that's a long time. I mean, that's 40, what, that's 80 years? Right, I'm just saying, like, of all the times to repeal yeah. it when we were putting right. Japanese people into internment camps. So at the time, I mean, in Arthur's presidency, the country was coming together via railroads, which were largely built by Chinese immigrants. And go ahead, what what are you smirking at, gentlemen? You're you don't realize that you're falling into a Big Lebowski reference. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen I've yeah. seen that movie once yeah. and I was not really. We're not talking about the guys that built the railroads here. We're talking about the guys that peed on dude's rug. All right, sorry, go ahead. I do catch that reference about the rug. Yeah. And they drank white Russians in that movie. They sure did. And there's yeah. something about nihilists with Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman in that movie. But you know who didn't roll on Shabbos? Uh, Walter. Chester Alan Arthur. Yeah. So besides that, he was really thought of highly. Even the cynical Mark Twain observed, quote, it would be hard indeed to better President Arthur's administration, end quote. He wasn't joking. Yeah, no, and there I have some strong thoughts on Arthur on legacy there. So okay. we'll get there, yeah. We're going to talk about the Navy now. Uh, if you or someone you know has served in our nation's Navy... Chester Arthur is somewhat attached to that. His Mm -hmm. presidency is remembered for having taken the crucial first steps in building a modern Navy. If you recall, Blaine and Russ and you, John Adams was Mm -hmm. influential in really kind of being the father of the Navy. Arthur was known as the father of the Steel Navy. Yeah, I looked that up because I was curious if he was like considered the father of the modern Navy. Mm -hmm. And it not quite. But it was him and Wilson Chandler. William Chandler. William Chandler, huh? sorry. His secretary William of the Navy. William Chandler. Yep. Uh, that basically rebuilt the Navy with steel ships. Yes. Which effectively really ended the old Navy. Yeah. Well, is that another reference that I missed? Uh, to old Navy. Oh, old Navy. <laughs> the, the clothier. Okay, I got that one. No, uh, you didn't. <laughs> there is a connection to my childhood in Chester Arthur. Because your dad was in the Navy. He, Well, yes, he was, and my grandfather. But the Naval War College uh, that my dad taught at for three years, my third, fourth, and fifth grade years growing uh-huh. up, was established in Newport, Rhode Island under Arthur's administration. Oh, cool. Yeah. Shout out to L. Shout out to L. God love him. In 1882, Arthur has become at this point fatigued, irritable, ill, and depressed. There are reports that the Surgeon General examined him in October, about a year after becoming president, and diagnosed him with a kidney affliction known then as Bright's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no longer a recognized concept in medicine, but it really affected his overall just personality and moods and overall health. Isn't it Crohn's disease now? It might might be. Didn't it shift to Crohn's? I think it I think did. It might have been. Yeah. yeah. Arthur though knew he had a death sentence that this was going to get worse before it got any better and he really kept this hidden 
from his inner circle. He kind of buried this and kept this within it. A cover-up began. The New York Herald at the time reported the story, and an Arthur spokesman specifically denied the president had Bright's disease and claimed that the president had a mild form of malaria, which at that time was endemic in the nation's capital. Overall, Arthur's actions were extremely unpopular with his own party. Uh, Shocking. The, yeah, the Republican... His party that was super corrupt. <laughs> yeah, right. Didn't like that his, it, he was it, uncorrupt. It depended on patronage to be yeah. dominant within the nation at the time. And at the 1884 convention, Arthur was passed over for the nomination in favor of James Blaine, who had been his Secretary of State. Arthur practiced law and business after leaving the presidency in March of 1885, but was advised to retire for medical reasons in February of 1886. His last month were miserable. He had cardiac problems. He had heart failure. He needed opiates to sleep. He had tried relocating from New York to the cooler climate of Connecticut, but found no relief. He returned to New York and told a friend, after all, life is not worth living. I might as well give up the struggle for it now as at any other time and submit to the inevitable. So a couple of things. One, right before he died, he had one of his assistants burn all of the correspondence before the White House. Yes. Because he was a changed man, and mm-hmm. he wanted to forget his old life, and he didn't want people to know like how corrupt he was before. Yeah. Understandable, but I think that to understand a character change, it's important to understand where they came from. Mm. So I'm glad that That's we deep. knew his background. I think the biggest stain today on his presidency is the Supreme Court ruling in 1883. So in 1883, the Supreme Court ruled 8 to 1 that private businesses could refuse service based on color. Mm. And this is what started Jim Crow laws. Mm. And he gets a lot of the blame for that. And, you know, the fact that it happened under his presidency. It happened under his presidency. There's not a lot you could do about that as a president. And it's, it's hard to say, you know, we said earlier foreshadowing with his very first law case with Elizabeth Jennings, when he fought for black people to be able to ride the streetcars. I'd like to think that he didn't agree with the decision, but there was really nothing in the book that said if he did or didn't, there's nothing he could do about it at that point because it goes through the Supreme court, but he does get a big black X on his is marked because yeah. Jim Crow laws started under his presidency. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons he's rated so low. Mm. I think that when they take into uh, account his corruption coming up in the ranks and that yeah. specifically, like yeah. that's a big one, right? Like Jim Crow laws were awful and sure. they were still on the books for 70, 80 years yeah. after that. You're going to get marked for that because the definition of a leader is you are uh, responsible for all you do or fail to do. And in that instance, he failed to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can't ignore it. But I think that overall, the fact that he was willing to change and did so drastically, he's one of the people that through this journey, I've been really impressed with. Hmm. It's hard to change. And it's definitely hard to change and completely turn your back on and then go against everybody that put you into power. Yes. And that's what he did. And that really impressed me. Like people have asked me, who's your favorite president? And as you've read it, who have been your favorites? Yeah. Chester Arthur's up there, man. Hmm. Because I read these through the, the lens of character. I try not read them through the lens of partisanship or through the lens of what they passed or didn't pass. I try to read them as how is this person as a human being? Mm-hmm. 
And I think that because it's such a huge thing to change, especially when you're in your 40s or 50s, he's up there from a human being standpoint yeah. for me. He's pretty established and entrenched in his core values. At that. Yeah, not only in his core values, but that corruption got him the vice presidency sure. and technically got him the presidency. Sure. And he completely changed everything he was about because yeah. he saw this man was a man of character and to be able to hold this office, I have to be a man of character. So I now will do everything I can to be one. Yeah. I think that that's very impressive. That's a good word. I would agree. And, and not only that, but this book was actually, I enjoyed reading this book. I if, did too. If you're a reader, uh, again, the book is The Unexpected President, The Life and Times of Chester Arthur by Scott S. Greenberger. Check it out. You can also go to our show notes and find the links where you can get it yourself. On November 18th, 1886, at the age of 57, Chester Arthur dies of a cerebral hemorrhage about 24 hours after being found unconscious by his nurse. His last words remain unknown. I always try to find those last words, but couldn't find him this time. On November 22nd, a private funeral was held at the Church of the Heavenly Rest in New York City, attended by President Cleveland and ex-President Hayes. Arthur was buried with his family members and ancestors in the Albany Rural Cemetery and was laid beside his wife, Nell, in a sarcophagus on a large corner of the plot. After Arthur's death, journalist Alexander McClure wrote, quote, No man ever entered the presidency so profoundly and widely distrusted as Chester Allen Arthur, and no one ever retired more generally respected alike by political friend and foe, end quote. Arthur's post-presidency was the second shortest of all presidents who lived past their presidency, only shorter by James K. Polk. 100 Brief days. Yeah, three yeah. months, give or take, before he died. Historians view the Chester Arthur presidency as an important surprise, one that no one would have expected, including him. Yeah. Put simply, he performed well in office, defying his state-based reputation as a slick machine politician. Despite his poor health, he attempted to govern competently, and he succeeded to a degree that was never acknowledged by his fellow politicians, the press, or the great mass of Americans at the time, or even today. According to C-SPAN's Presidential Historians Survey that we always hold during uh, our episodes, Arthur currently sits at number 30, below George W. Bush and above Richard Nixon. Yeah, see, I don't like him being tied to somebody of such low character. Hmm. Like, because if you're next to somebody in that rank, yeah. you're tied to them. And there's right? a number of different factors, and it's not yeah. the only poll that ranks is. You know, right. And, and my pretty. poll, my, sure, sure, my sure. criteria yeah. is yeah. different yeah. than theirs, right? Yeah. My criteria is based on character. Right, yeah. Their criteria is based on policy. It's based on what you did, what you, were, what yeah. you passed, what you didn't pass. Sure. I, I just... From a legacy standpoint, like I would really encourage people to read this book. It's it's two hundred. It's an easy two hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, two, it took us a handful of days. Yeah. yeah, and it's very enlightening. And I mean, for anybody, right? Like to see a character change like that. It's not as drastic, but it, like Saul Paul, right? Or Paul yeah. Saul. Saul into Paul. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's a drastic change that he yeah. made, and it's really impressive. Russ, did you catch that reference, Saul into Paul? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, the road to Damascus. <laughs> mm. Let's jump into some little-known facts about Chester A. Arthur. He was fancy. He supposedly owned about 80 pairs of pants and shoes, which came in handy because he loved to change his outfit during the day. Well, that corset gets hot. Oof. <laughs> he wore a tuxedo to dinner. 
which was kind of nice. Like he, he loved to get really fancy. He ordered 20 pairs of pants made to his measurements before selecting one. He spent $125 on hats in an eight month span, <laughs> which today would have been multiple thousands of yeah. dollars. That's uh, more. That's like every new era hat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One day he went on a shopping spree at Brooks Brothers and he spent $15,000 in today's money. They were like, you're going to love it. I guarantee it. (laughs) Uh, This earned him the nickname of Elegant Arthur. He refused to hire a bodyguard during his presidency, but he did have a wild since the guy before him got shot. Let's see. Should I have someone protect me at all costs? Nah. But he did hire a valet who attended to his clothes and personal belongings. He liked to stay up late and go up for walks around D.C., sometimes as late as two or three in the morning. So he was somewhat of a night owl. He was the first president to be born in Vermont. Hmm. Can you name the second blame? We've both read the book. Uh, no. Okay. Calvin Coolidge. Oh, okay. A little foreshadowing there. There was a discrepancy about his birth. There, He was the first birther myth uh, <laughs> president. Uh, a lot of people thought that he wasn't born in America, that he was born either in Ireland or Canada. Okay. Because that was his stock. There was... There was uh, discrepancy there but he was actually born in vermont to this day arthur is the last sitting president pursuing re-election to be denied his party's nomination he was also the first to have an elevator installed in the white house it's kind of cool on may 24th 1883 the iconic brooklyn bridge opened in new york arthur and governor at the time grover cleveland walked from manhattan across the walkway seeing the spectacular views of the harbor and the east river which is a pretty big deal. I mean, because at the point, I think in history, it was like the biggest bridge or largest bridge, yeah. longest bridge of all time. Part of the New York Marathon. Have you run that? I haven't. I want to. Yeah? I want to. I've heard it's uh, cooler in theory than when you're doing it, but I still want to do it because like 80% of the marathon is a bridge because you run all oh. five boroughs. Okay. And so most wow. of the marathon is just going over a bridge Gosh. to a different borough. Probably the Veranzano, yeah. the Brooklyn. One of these days I'll know what the experience is like firsthand. Yeah. That's <laughs> so. fun. How many marathons have you run in your entire life? Uh 14. Gosh, that's a lot. That uh-huh. is several to Not me. enough. I have not seen this movie, but in the 1995 film Die Hard with a Vengeance, is that the sequel? That's the Samuel Jackson one, isn't it? I think it's the third. Is it the oh, third? Okay. 95? I haven't seen yeah, any okay. of the diehards. Nope. Have oh. you guys? Yeah. Yes. Of course. We I've seen probably. them all. Oh, I'm sorry, Russ. Of course. <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> yeah. We should probably watch them all together at some point. Okay. I have seen all Godfather. Challenge accepted. Done. And Back to the Future and Star Wars. Anyway, okay. in that film, a suspect... You just added, like, multiple weeks. <laughs> like... <laughs> they do say, take some time. Yeah. In that movie, Die Hard with a Vengeance, a suspected bomb is placed in a school named after Chester mm-hmm. Arthur. Yep. It's kind of mm-hmm. random. <laughs> Blaine, do you have any little known facts? The last reception he went to as president was the opening of the Washington Monument. Ooh, now hold on. Let me try to think who was there. Was it Zachary Uh, Taylor who went to the laying of the cornerstone and then died like three months later? He got very sick once going to America's new hit vacation spot, Florida. 
his sickness was basically a combination of a sunburn and probably a little bit of malaria from the mosquitoes. Oh, but man. like America was finding Florida and being like, this is a cool vacation spot. Yeah. I'm going to go down here. And so he was like, I'm the president. I'm going to try it out. And got violently sick because sunburn wasn't invented yet. Or sunscreen wasn't invented yet. I have been there, not with the malaria, but I have been (laughs) so sunburned in Florida before. And it is not fun at all. Yeah, Poor Chester, Arthur in his corset with his mutton chops just sunburned and bitten by mosquitoes. The concept of the interview was essentially invented when he was president. Wait, what? Uh, Yeah. It's news to me as well. People had never had conversations at that point? Well, no, like as a press For, yeah, style. Yeah, so at yeah. the time, they would take statements and they would report on them. Wow. And so this is the first time that the press had tried an interview style. Huh. So basically, there was somebody from the Chicago press there, and they were being relatively aggressive for the time. Oh, sounds about right. And uh, they said, yeah, your administration is meeting with considerable popular favor. And he thought it was a trap. So he said, yes, I'm glad to hear it. And then the reporter tried to ask a follow-up question, but Arthur shut him down. He said, you really must excuse me. I make it a habit not to talk politics with you gentlemen of the press. By the way, I hope you are not interviewing me. I believe that is the word. Or intend to quote what I have been saying. Wow. Like, so the concept of wow. the press asking questions yeah. and them answering them, he was like, how uncouth of you. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So 1880 is when... Ish. Ish. Yeah, yeah. give or take. Somewhere 1881, 1882. That, yeah, yeah, that decade prior to the I mean, Gilded Age, yeah. That's I mean, when the interview was invented. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. I love that he was like, if that's the right word. Yeah, interviewing me, if that's the right word. <laughs> Sir, is this on the record? I have yeah. no idea yeah. what that means. <laughs> yeah. I literally do not know what so, you just said. Three little known facts for Blaine oh, this man. episode. That's fun. Bang. Yeah, I was I just it. the whole time waiting like he's going to do the Washington Monument thing. <laughs> I know it. I know he's going to steal this one. Yeah. No, I didn't have that. He yeah. was there, though. Russ, do you have any? I thought there was a Roscoe Conklin journey into... Oh. Okay. Oh, his his profound death. So, Roscoe Conkling yes. uh, Thank you, ended Russ. up becoming a lawyer. So, he was an attorney in a private practice, and he was supposed to show up in the morning to defend the will of widow A.T. Stewart, okay. who was a department store magnate. So, like, he has to go present the will. It was in the day of, like, a giant blizzard mm. in New York City. And he's like, I don't care about the blizzard. I'm walking out, undaunted by the weather. So he went from Broadway between 24th and 25th to the courthouse downtown. And he got there and found out that the judge was snowbound and postponed it. So he's like, mm. oh, I'll head back to the office. Gosh. He gets completely, like, snowblind walking back to the office. Wow. It was u- it was dark. It was useless to pick out a path, so I went magnificently along, shouldering through the drifts, and headed for the north. By the time he reached Union Square at Fourteenth Street, he was exhausted. Gosh! So at this point, he was stuck in a drift up to his arms, wow. blinded, and he realized that the blizzards that he had read about by Russian novelists were not fiction. <laughs> Thought about giving up and just dying. And just kept walking. (laughs) Three hours later, he stumbled back into the New York club on 25th Street. He's caked in snow and ice. He's safe. But he ends up getting a cold. And instead of just resting, continues to work. And his condition continues to worsen. And he dies, slips into a coma, 
and never wakes up. Wait, he slipped into a coma He's, after he died? Sorry. Crazy. He slipped into a coma, which he never woke up from and died. So, wow. Yeah, the real Hin- William Henry Harrison vibes there. Yeah. It like, was like, Blizzard, never heard of her. That's eh, fine. I'm walking through it. Like, <laughs> Is that the thing they served me upside down at yeah. Dairy Queen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Roscoe Conkling, Gosh. to his last breath, was stubborn as all get out. Oh, man. Wow. Thank you so much for listening to the Presidential Podcast brought to you again by Greeks Pizzeria. If you love this episode, please subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a review. Our next episode on 22nd and 24th, President Grover Cleveland will be released on Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. In the meantime, connect with us on all the socials at Presequential. If you love this podcast, you want episodes early and ad-free, and maybe you want some bonus episodes, sign up to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Presequential. We hope you enjoyed episode 21, The Walrus of the Presequential Podcast. <laughs>